hello and welcome to The Bright Side here on News Radio 1025 WFLA. It's another Friday. Friday! <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's me, uh, Joel Hunter, here with my father. Uh, what's your name, father? <laughs> I'm also Joel Hunter. We are both Joel Hunter, uh, and we uh, are here to talk to you about... Uh, ways to help you help others. That's what the bright side is. That's what this whole show is dedicated to, is this idea that uh, in general, people want to help. And if you're listening to this, you're probably one of those people. You know why? Because you're not somewhere robbing somebody right now. <laughs> Thank like, you. And, uh, Thank you for being a constructive part of the community. <laughs> first off. Listening to radio. Thanks for that. And and so uh, we like to start during this first segment to to recognize uh, big days, you know, big, big, important uh, national and international days. Pop, you've got a, you got a humdinger one today. Uh, this is one of the true heroes of Western civilization. This is William Wilberforce Day. William Wilberforce. Uh, now, who was he? What, what did he do? <laughs> he was the Martin Luther King Jr. Mahatma Gandhi uh, of England. Hmm. Um, he was uh, born on this day. Um, to a, a family of wealth and position, he's one of these powerful people who used his power to help others. Oh, so he wasn't one of those rags to riches kind of. He was born into he, he had status. Was, he was status. He, he was born. He although he could have looked the other way. Although uh -huh. he could have looked the other way, but his 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 childhood was challenging because he was short like me, mm -hmm. and he had he was nearsighted. Which could have been fixed by you. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you really tied it all together. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the the uh, the slightly below average height thing, I I get that you only because you talk about it so much. You know, if you're listening to the show, I'm not calling my father short because he is a giant of a man. <laughs> yeah. But he mentions it a lot that he's slightly below the median well, height. I love uh, the little people. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I understand why you uh, why you would like him. Um, so what did he go on to do? You say he's like the Martin Luther King Jr. I'm going to just guess. Uh, he lowered tea prices. <laughs> Is that right? No. Explain why they, those, no. Nah. Those Brits love their tea. They do. I would they understand do. why they would like that. He went, he was, he, he had this great personality. Um, he had a, a natural social, he was an extrovert, social nature, flair for entertaining. And he went right from Cambridge into Parliament. Wow. At 21 so, years old, wow. he enters parliament and, and spent decades there um, to, repair, uh, to repair the, the moral fabric of, of a country in respect to slavery. Wow. He was a chief abolitionist, a uh, voice for abolitionists. You know what's interesting is to look back at different, thing, different events in history, different times, epochs, where it would seem like something that's almost a, a current, you know, the current meme is that you know you have uh, young young whippersnappers, young hippies coming in and trying to shake up you know hey your old your old social yep. Yep. your old social fabric is is tattered and there's all these moral moral failings in it and uh, and it seems like such a modern thing you know people uh, you know us millennials love to be like boy we sure know what's going on <laughs> we <laughs> That's right. we're on the right side of history <laughs> but if you look back through history you see guys like this you know uh, not a slacker I mean very impressively smart getting through Cambridge and then ending up in Congress or not Congress Parliament what's the British version of Congress <laughs> Parliament <laughs> <laughs> the House of Whirligigs. <laughs> 
Um, and he goes straight to Parliament, and then and but working on that, you know, kind of a like a young Bernie Sanders type of fellow. It was. He used all of his social position, all of his wealth, all of his um, political ties, all of his relationships to leverage. Um, for those who were in bondage. And uh, not only did he uh, end the slave trade uh, in Britain, but three years before, or, yeah, I think it was just three months before he died, mm -hmm. he actually got all of the existing slaves in England free. You know, it makes me wonder what the difference is between what happened in England. I guess it would just be a volume of the volume of slaves, you know, proportionally for the population and also the, the geographic demarcation in America, because you, you know, it, it, 1833, they're all emancipated in Britain and, uh, sorry, British people, Great Britain. <laughs> That's right. They write letters. Over I there. know. Yeah. I know. And they write them with an accent. I was listening to your show. <laughs> <laughs> On 24 8 18, because they do the backwards thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so um, so they all get emancipated, you know, 1833. And uh, you don't really hear about, and maybe I just am ignorant of it, but you don't really hear about the the years of, you know, Reconstruction and then Jim Crow and then, you know, this this ongoing, it was this, it, slaves were freed in the United States, but it was a, it was a long time and still in some ways ongoing before yeah. it was before there was true equality, you know, I mean, yeah. it took a long time. And so I imagine there were steps in England, but you don't really hear about it the same way. You think it's probably just a difference in, in population density or something? I, I don't know. There's this, uh, we would, we need to invite on a, a Brit to tell us uh, about the history of the country and how it went over there. But it, it, it looks like um, they got to equality a bit faster than we did. Yeah. Uh, we're still struggling with this systemic racism mm -hmm. um, and and still trying to work all of this out, especially in our current era. Uh, but it, but the struggle continues. Yeah. And and not to get to, you know, our first segment, I have a big bold thing here that says, stay lighthearted. Oh, for the first yeah. Segment. oh but, yeah. But I did want to ask you one slightly not lighthearted question. Okay. What, just for anyone listening, they're like systemic racism, this, then these hippies. Uh, what, what is that and why is it a real thing? If you had to give like a 30 second. Well, basically, uh, the, uh, the principle is those who have get mm -hmm. and those who don't. And this is a biblical principle as well, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, that if you leave the world systems as they are, um, if you have, you'll get more. If you don't have, even what you have will be taken away. Mm. Uh, and so those who start in disadvantage, whether it be because of the color of your skin or because of your socioeconomic uh, ranking at the bottom, mm -hmm. um, you're less likely to be given the chances um, to lift yourself up than those who already have advantages and relationships and and resources and connections and all of that kind of stuff. And so and so basically any system that continues discrimination and in many ways our prison system, our um, our law enforcement, uh, um, um, some of the different programs um, that favor um, those who already have connections. Um, and and many it's it's many for many it's unintentional. It's not mm -hmm. that are mean people who just hate who hate black people or or people of of of, uh, of uh, Latino community. Yeah, exactly, Filipinos. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Anyone it's who's the, not white. 
It's yeah. the it's the way economic systems are built. Yeah, that makes sense. It's 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 the lack of an intentional uh, giving people bootstraps. Basically, you know, the problem with pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, <laughs> you look down, and you're like, I'm right. I'm barefoot, and all know. my family's in Got prison. No boots. Yeah, it's really that's a really tough thing to do. Um, uh, we only have a minute and thirty seconds left. Uh, I just want to I just want to highlight one other thing that happened. Uh, you know, on this day in history, Mount Vesuvius. Erupted. Oh yeah, yeah. This is another bummer. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. It was a uh, uh, 79 AD, and uh, people were just going about their business, and they're like, "Look at that! That's, uh, that's some smoking up there." <laughs> and then, and then years later, we just have that same guy just standing there holding a piece of cheese. <laughs> And it's it's the most bizarre. To me, it's one of the most bizarre outlines of these people. One of the most bizarre historical events in the world. You know, like because you understand, there's some of them where like you can tell clearly they're running and they got buried and stuff. And there's other ones where they're just like they're just playing like Roman chess or whatever. It's like it's too shall pass. I know. Uh, I do feel sleepy. Yeah. It's uh, and now and but it's really given us a window. You know, Pompey's let us see a lot about uh, how the world used to be, and uh, there were. there were problems in Rome, I'd say, you know, some, uh, some, some systemic issues and how people right. were treated. That's right. Talk about trying to get out from under oppression. There was, <laughs> there was people that had a rough go there. Uh, and we still have people that need help here today, even if it's uh, less obvious to us. In a way, that's a problem. It's less obvious and it requires people like the guests that we have today. The William Wilberforce the of Orlando. William Wilberforce that's of Orlando. That's we have today. He's cringing so hard at hearing that, <laughs> but, he, but, but he's not talking until next segment, so we can say all the nice things we want. But when we come back, we're going to have the William Wilberforce of Orlando with us. We'll see you in a minute. Hello, this is The Bright Side, and this is News Radio 1025 WFLA. We are your hosts, Joel Hunter and Joel Hunter, the wise and the whimsical, <laughs> wisdom and whimsy. That is, we'll let you figure out who is who. Uh, if you'll know, because his, my father's voice just sounds wiser when you hear it. Even if you order in a restaurant, yeah. you're like... Uh, do you have <laughs> any hamburgers? You know, wise. <laughs> and I'm whimsical. <laughs> yes, you are. So one of the things that I love about this show that is uh, the whole show is about helping you help other people. It's it's hearing the stories of people who are the helpers uh, and and the people who use their influence to help to to inspire us to do more and to then kind of give some actionable steps to do more. Um, simple.help, which is on the, the internet. If you look for it and type in simple.help, that's one of those actionable steps. But it, doing this, I get to meet all these amazing people because you know them, Pop, and it's very exciting for me, um, but it means you're a much better uh, person to introduce than I am. So well, who's our guest today? Well, I'm, I'm not going to take, I, I, although I relish the thought of embarrassing him, even as, <laughs> even, even as he sits here, um, but this guy is a leader of leaders. Um, he is uh, often on the 50 Most Powerful, uh, Orlando Magazine, 50 Most Powerful, because he's such a major force in Central Florida. Uh, he has spent a good deal of his time being the executive director of very important organizations, uh, LifeWork Leadership, um, um, Jobs. He's on the board of Jobs Partnership. He's an international consultant. Um, but basically, we want to interview him today for his work with Lyft. Uh, Lyft is a an organization uh, that is a partner uh, with business people downtown, um, and Eddie Moriton um, has uh, is the executive director of Lyft Orlando, which um, has focused on a geographical portion of our city uh, to do holistic 
um, community transformation. Um, and so, Eddie, thank you for being on with us this morning. It's, you're, you're a hero to, to this community. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Joel. You're both very kind and whimsical. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So first things first, I just wanted to know, um, I, I can, I'll confess as, as uh, somebody who got to hear the name Lyft Orlando for the first time, I'm not going to lie. The first thing I thought of was L-Y-F-T, right? Isn't that, the, those are the buses. Yeah, we get oh. about three of those calls a day at our <laughs> office. Really? So I, <laughs> I, I need a ride. Somebody mad outside a club. <laughs> yeah. I'm still waiting for this ride. Come on, you guys. So, so uh, can you uh, just briefly, for people that were ignorant to what you guys are doing, like I was until a little bit ago, uh, you know, a couple, uh, well, I guess it's been a couple months now, but um, what what is it you, you it's not a ride sharing service, uh, from what I understand. Uh, it's, what is Lyft, what's the idea, the the goal, the mission of what you guys are trying to do? Well, I love, it's so perfectly appropriate that you started out today by commemorating the legacy of William Wilberforce, because he's a personal inspiration of mine, an incredible role model in history, so much so I proposed the name Wilbur for our son, uh, wow, which got really? vetoed by oh, my wife. Oh, <laughs> man. Actually, I wanted to meet Wilberforce as a middle name, but she was afraid he would go by Wilbur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's because his example of really realizing that people that had power uh, were not, as many argue today, responsible to relinquish that power because power does not uh, automatically distribute itself to those that have the least of it. In Mm -hmm. fact, when good people relinquish power, it only ends up concentrated by those who have no scruples about it. Uh, So the responsibility for those who have access and power and influence is to gratefully steward it and then generously share it to Mm -hmm. leverage their position for the benefit of other people. And so Lyft Orlando started because business leaders in the downtown corridor began to realize that in spite of all their great efforts and social responsibility initiatives and uh, corporate philanthropy and personal generosity, there was a sense that we weren't really moving the needle on the things that mattered most in Mm -hmm. Orlando. There Mm -hmm. were issues like homelessness and poverty and, and struggles in every category that make up our our beautiful city and our society that we realized that we needed to try something different. And I had been involved because of my years in leadership development and other efforts with many of the companies in this conversation. Uh, And as they began to intersect around what we could do that would be different, that could move the needle in new ways, I was just sort of uh, facilitating a conversation that led to what we now describe as business leaders partnering with residents, primarily on the west side of Mm. town, uh, to break the cycle of generational poverty through the specific strategy of neighborhood revitalization. Mm. The neighborhood is sort of the human scale of society where you can create a rich environment, an ecosystem for children and families to thrive in ways that programs on their own, regardless how well-funded or run they are, just yeah. can't do by themselves. What was it that that led you in this direction? You know, because when you read through your your resume and, and it's it, there's impressive stuff on there. Um, you know, I know you're not allowed to say that, but I can. And, and it... It it was a lot of the stuff that was in commerce and the business world, and 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 then this has it's it's like you said you you're not relinquishing any of the relationships that you gained in that the kind of the power and influence that you might have gained through that, but you're but you're using it towards this. What led towards this push specifically? Was it was it a conversation? Was it multiple conversations? Was it something you just felt specifically for you? Like this this is what I need to do now in my life. So there are a couple of facets. Personally, I relate uh, to who we're trying to serve. In uh, 1990, my mom, uh, three siblings, myself, and two grandparents moved here after my mom had divorced. And then we had 
stayed just around the corner from here at the Travel Lodge on the intersection of I-4 and Lee Road. Wow. Uh, and I remember vividly when my mom told me she'd paid our last 50 bucks for us to stay in that oh. little motel. How old were you uh, then? I was 16 years old. Okay. Wow. And it was that evening, uh, I had spent more of my youth trying to blend in in high school than pay attention in church. But mm -hmm. I remember waking up at 2 a.m., grabbing her Bible and going to the bathroom to try to read something spiritual or inspiring or hope-giving. Mm -hmm. But I'd lost practice, didn't even know what to read. So I closed it and spoke what's probably the most lame sinner's prayer the Lord's ever heard. Oh, but I said, look, uh, no promises, but you get us out of this and I'll try the whole Christian thing out for real. <laughs> hey, awesome. You can imagine God smiling and be like, I like this I guy. I like that. I like that prayer right there. That's awesome. <laughs> well, he took me up on it. So 8 a.m. the next morning, a pastor knocked on our door through the most mysterious of circumstances and it led to a whole new beginning and a stronger walk for me. But we were very active in this little startup ministry that did a lot of uh, inner city work with guys coming out of gangs and drugs and violence and helping them reestablish themselves and their families and communities. But I was a bivocational ministry eventually there, helping in youth ministry and then an associate pastor in this small church. And uh, because of, I had to still pay bills, I ended up working at the Chamber of Commerce. And I was, remember starting there just kind of as a schlepper and eventually moved up, was working uh, as director of membership services. And Jacob Stewart, who ran the Chamber at the time, would take me to these meetings. And I began to sit in conversations with the, the Tom Yoakums of that time, Glenda Hood, our mayor, yeah. and others who sat around tables. And I noticed that they talked about Orlando, not just about as the place where they lived, but a place that they were changing with decisions that they made about the future of a community. And that that holistic view of a city and the role that people in the business world have to impact it with an understanding of the dark underbelly of that same city mm -hmm. really awoke my heart to a desire to see uh, the truths that we learn in scripture be more relevant and evident in the world around us. So fast forward the tape, I spent uh, about seven, 10 years in total involved with LifeWork leadership, uh, challenging leaders to have a calling for the marketplace, to leverage their platform for good, but beyond talking about it and teaching it, we didn't, never did anything directly about it besides mm -hmm. inspiring business leaders to serve on boards. And uh, we had been part of a study from 2006 to 2009 called Seeking the Wealth for the City to evaluate nonprofits in Orlando and came back with the awareness. We've earned the nickname City Beautiful because we have over 4,000 nonprofits and charities, but the Gallup Institute would rank us one of the worst cities in the country for the well-being of the poor. Wow. And that just really stuck with us wow. as to like, what's missing there? How yeah, does that make wow. any sense? We're yeah. spending so much money, doing so much. So when uh, the group of business leaders uh, organized around Tom Sidema, who was CEO at CNL Financial Group at the time, uh, because he was new to town, drove through Paramore for the first time. And if you ever kind of leave downtown, head west, down South Street or mm -hmm. church, some days it looks like you're driving through a third world country. Mm -hmm. You can't believe mm -hmm. you just left downtown Orlando. Mm -hmm. And he was able to see that with fresh eyes, enough to sort of stir the pot among a few of us. And so uh, when Bill Diamond from Lounge Drastic and Steve Hogan, who ran the Camping World Stadium at the time, and uh, Sai Saliba from Florida Hospital, among the first few voices in that conversation asked, what can we do differently? We went back to the research. Uh, and this research that had been sitting around for a little while began to point us in the direction of something that was entirely different but it started with acknowledging the importance of a neighborhood as the mm -hmm. right environment for serving people, as opposed to a program or a collection of services. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have to go to a break here in just in just a moment. Uh, but the thing that I want to come back to talking about, uh, because it's something that just it hit me for the first time, uh, maybe maybe like it hit you for the first time. That idea that a city is not this 
static, this is the place and it will slowly change and stuff like that, but that there are active decisions and active organizations and active policies that can go into place that will, that it, you can change it to what we want it to look like. Uh, that's really interesting to me and kind of inspiring. So I want to talk about that. Uh, but first we have to go to a break to hear from our sponsors and uh, we should all buy whatever they tell us. Too. Yes. All right. We'll see you in just a minute. <laughs> Hello, this is The Bright Side here on News Radio 1025 WFLA, and we are here to talk about ways to help you help other people. Pop and I, whose names are Joel Hunter and Joel Hunter, mm -hmm. either helpfully or confusingly, uh, <laughs> we, we host this show um, on, uh, what's this, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, That's today's right. Friday, and we, we do this to, uh, to try to talk about um, stuff that you can do if you want to, but also it's really helpful to just hear from people who are doing amazing things. Right. And so today we're talking to Eddie Morton, who is, uh, who's, uh, the director, the executive director, Lord leader. I don't really know the title. <laughs> uh, the high potentate. The high potentate. He's got a hat on. <laughs> the creator of the rolling <laughs> spheres, uh, who, who runs lift Orlando, which is this, this whole mission to transform uh, Orlando, uh, you know, from the ground up or inside out or, or in one spot geographically to spread. And we were talking before the break about this idea, you know, you were talking, you were saying how you were sitting in, in these meetings with, you know, people that were influential in the community, Glenda Hood, you know, the previous mayor, and um, hearing this idea of this city being dynamic, you know, it's, it's responding to changes and you can, you can make it what you want. And I wanted to talk more about that, you know, specifically, I mean, with you, Pop, because you spent... Uh, almost five decades inside the walls of the church. You know, there were missions trips and things like that, but it was mostly, you know, you're the pastor, this is my flock. And you have um, really, you know, bent your force towards the the city and changing that. Um, is is it the same thing as, as, as I mean, what what changed for you? Is it, is it that you realize that there's stuff that can happen in the city that will have wider reach or or it's more dynamic? I mean, how, how did that happen? Well, I, I was listening to some of the same um conversations that Eddie was hearing uh, from the leaders who were saying, we can do something about this. Um, and I was also, um, in my heart, um, kind of the same place, Eddie, you were in that um, I, I didn't have very much coming up. And I, and I identified with people who were struggling. And so, um, like Eddie and like William Wilberforce, <laughs> we decided to leverage all of the connections and the influence we had for those who needed it most. And so, Eddie, I'd like to ask you um, about the strategy. First of all, what did Polis have to do with, with um, your strategy, uh, gaining the information as to what would be wise, and then specifically about focusing on a neighborhood development rather than just a general, let's help people in poverty kind of strategy? Oh, thank you. In fact, um, Polis Institute, founded by Phil Hissom, uh, has been such an integral part to what we do. And we spend so much time learning from Phil that I joke around these days. If I ever say anything wise, I'm not sure if it's if I came up with it or if Phil came up yeah. with it. <laughs> I, most of the time, I'm just quoting Phil. Yeah. Um, but when we realized we needed to do something different, my first idea was we need to bring him in. See, when we had done that three-year study almost 10 years earlier, he was a graduate student at RTS uh, who ended up on this project reluctantly, ended up being the lead researcher on the project. And when the results came back, they were so insightful, but counterintuitive and different that he founded the Polis Institute to do research and training and help other nonprofits improve what they were doing. So we went to him first and said, look, we think we want to uh, 
approach this differently than it's been done before, as we began to learn about the model of being place-based, uh, he gave us the resources to take different steps. And I'll come back to that to address uh, one of the biggest ahas from the research. Basically, uh, the vast majority of our nonprofits and services were doing crisis relief, helping people feeding, clothing, right. housing, helping people in times of crisis. Problem is over 95% of our poor were not in crisis. It wasn't a hurricane or some major calamity. In fact, they were in long-term, chronic, even generational poverty. Right. A smaller percentage was growing, was doing betterment and training, providing resources and skills for folks to stand on their own too. But what was happening around the country was in two completely separate categories uh, that we had no mature examples of in Central Florida. They were either on the extreme of uh, strong community development initiatives uh, or uh, really systems change and macro investments. These things, it's like comparing what was happening here was the shift between uh, giving a man a fish and teaching a man how to fish. You've all heard mm -hmm, that before. Mm -hmm. But other communities had figured out that metaphor extended forward. So now the man knows how to fish, but does he own a fishing rod, mm. have the right bait, have access to a pond, or is it fenced off? Has it been stocked lately? That there were environmental circumstances that affected your ability to succeed. That is a less popular saying, that one. Yes, <laughs> by far. <laughs> and so there's something there about how do you create a different environment? And when you trace back the history uh, for how we created, because they didn't happen by accident. People didn't, just didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know, I'm going to make my neighborhood poor and make it a hard place to get out of. In fact, there were circumstances that were designed in such a way because of the history of our country where communities cordoned off certain neighborhoods from opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the long-term effect of that over time is generations of people growing up in a concentration of poverty where they're less likely to even imagine better opportunities. But it's now become such that in America in 2018, the number one predictor to your outcomes in life, not just income level, academic achievement, but chances of being incarcerated, even how long you will live by a factor of 15 to 20 years is determined by your zip code. Yeah. Like wow. Literally the neighborhood where you were born will determine that more than anything else. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so that aha told us that to scatter goodwill to the four winds, uh, to as philanthropic as we may want to be, will always be a mile wide and an inch deep that to be more laser-like and surgical and actually have the more most bang for the buck, we need to go after the neighborhoods where we have the most opportunity to make the most dramatic difference and then commit to the individual people and families, not to churning large amounts of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think for us, that insight has been foundational the, in the models that we've chosen from around the country and the approach that we take. Um, and Phil's been instrumental in us doing that. I'd say the probably three ways to think about what we do. Um, one is to really invest in people. Mm -hmm. So when we started doing research, uh, the Polis Institute helped us identify residents who were in the area who were unemployed at the time uh, and taught them on how to do neighborhood survey work and asset mapping. And Great. those skills served to create uh, more experience for them to get better jobs, but they ended up conducting the largest urban neighborhood survey ever done in the city and laying a foundation for resident engagement that normally you don't do when you're just trying to deliver services for clients. Mm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I don't know. Is your question You better? took a deep Am breath. I, no, I know I no, did. Yours, I'm sure yours well, I just, is. I just had this. How tall are you? No, I, uh, <laughs> my question was, uh, do you think the fact that, that poverty does tend to be so geographically pocketed, you know, it's, 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 there's deep, deep, lakes of it and and then it's but there's not it's not like it's just everyone's kind of immersed it, it you can find it by zip code like you were saying does that make it a harder problem to solve or easier or does it just change 
how you have to look at solving it. You know, is it like, great, well, it's just here, we can handle this, or does it make it 20 times harder because it's at every single strata within that zip code? In some ways it's harder because you realize that you can't just do one program. Like we started out thinking, well, gosh, you hear about crime. Let's just go fix crime because that's in the news every night. But then you find out we had a hundred percent turnover in some classrooms and neighborhood schools and crime was directly related to 70% of them were committed by high school dropouts. And mm -hmm. then the turnover is high because the housing is unstable and people can't get better housing because they can't get better jobs. And so the fact that you have to do it all that really makes it challenging. You have to be holistic. Our pillars are mixed income housing, cradle to career education, community health and wellness, and long-term economic viability. But because you're focusing on a neighborhood footprint, on a limited population of people, it actually turns viable at that yeah. point. That You could make significant investments. They would be very significant. But because there's a limited geographic scale as opposed to the whole county or the whole city, you can actually accomplish a, an investment on all fronts. Uh, that invest in people, the places that they're in, and the partnerships that sustain them. You know, when we got, I, I know we got to go to a break, Joel, but when we come back, I, I want to ask about just one aspect of what's got people very excited, uh, especially those of us that work with the homeless and, and are always looking for affordable housing. And I know that you are now um, building a $40 million, 200 apartment uh, community just south of Camping World. Um, and I want to ask you about that when we come back. Welcome back to the bright side here on News Radio 1025 WFLA. This is a show about helping you help other people, and it's hosted by myself. I'm named Joel Hunter, and my father, also named Joel Hunter. And this show specifically is really fun because we're talking to somebody who is uh, really helping a lot of people. Just before we went to break, Pop, you were asking about this uh, this housing, you know, you always, uh, you hear, always hear if you're listening to this show anyway, this idea of housing first, you know, how, how important yeah. having a, having a house is. Um, but what's, what's happening with a, a lot of houses being built? Well, this, yeah, this, uh, Pendana, um, addition at, at West Lakes, um, costs roughly $40 million. We'll, we'll have a 200, um, unit mixed comp, uh, mixed income complex, right? Correct. Um, and, and and there's good sides to this and and alarming size uh, sides to this. The good side is this is a wonderful step forward in a neighborhood full of blight, vacant houses. I mean, it was it was just so dilapidated in that neighborhood. Um, the frightening side of that. Would you like to tell us how many applicants there were? For these 200 units? We had over 10,000 people wow. uh, communicate interest in moving into these apartments. It's really wild. 10,000 applicants. Which for says something about 200. the demand in Central Florida. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Um, so, so, one aspect of what you do is at least you know, provide, uh, at least provide an, extend, uh, an extended capability of housing. Um, and, and what are some of the other aspects that surround that? Some of the support support uh, activities, uh, you know, the farmer's markets and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I mentioned earlier our investment in people. And so that first pillar led to us discovering also that there were not just a concentration of need, particularly on Orange Center Boulevard and these apartments that were mismanaged by absentee slumlords. But when you moved into the neighborhood a block either way, you began to find families that had been in the neighborhood 40, 50 years, hmm. many of whom with means to live anywhere they wanted. We have 
a collection of prominent people who just said, if we all leave the neighborhood, then what happens yeah. in the neighborhood? From our former chief judge to Navy admirals to people who literally could live in any neighborhood in this town. And so because we had this unusual collection of leaders in a neighborhood where, yes, there were legitimate needs, but there were folks with broad shoulders and an education who had made it in so many ways in every definition of the word, we had the ability to partner with their development as a strength. And so investing in that leadership, they now have a formal 501c3, a full-time executive director, a budget. They just won their first grant from the city, basically saying, Lift Orlando, you're doing new housing. We want to go after the vacant and dilapidated properties, Great. fix them up, get new homeowners Great. in our neighborhood. Great. And so investing in that sense of pride and identity, so much so that they've renamed the area between Paramore and Washington Shores, where we're working, basically between Orange Blossom Trail and John Young as the communities of Westlakes, because uh, they're made up right. of the neighborhoods around Rock Lake, Lake Lorna Dunes, Sunset Lake, and Clear Lake, and the stadium sits right in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And so as we've worked with them, that's translated to making investments in sort of our second area of work. It's just investing in the place, the physical environment, what are the investments in, in housing and schools and parks. And every single one of these projects has been done with a ton of resident input and direction, uh, partnership with them, compromises yeah. and negotiation on what's best. Uh, the apartments that you just described are phase one. It's 200 units of mixed income, uh, multifamily development. So we've got families making any amount of money, uh, renting some of our market rate units uh, next door to identical units where families are using some kind of public subsidy assistance mm -hmm. or an affordable rate made possible through Good. our tax credit program. Uh, our second phase will break ground in just a few weeks. We'll have 120 new units. Wow. Uh, this will all be senior. And in this case, we're going to do all affordable. Uh, because there's such a great need among our senior citizens in the neighborhood. Uh, the mixed income principle is key, though. We want uh, children to grow up as they used to, even in Paramore when it was segregated. Uh, Alzo Reddick, who was our first state black, black uh -huh. state representative, said to me that when he was growing up in Paramore, his neighbors were a citrus picker, a maid, and a mechanic. But across the street, there were two doctors and a lawyer. And so he knew yeah. that he could be whichever one of those he wanted and mm. made success not something aspirational, but completely attainable. It was yeah. relatable. And that's what we want to return to the neighborhood where children, regardless of where they're starting out, they know somebody with an education, a business, a couple of degrees, the kinds of environments where they realize that, gosh, if that guy can do it, then surely I can yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is the real root of the mission we're going after. And what uh, environments where neighbors from different backgrounds can create that kind of ecosystem. And Fantastic. then the following projects are in housing, uh, besides housing are in early childhood education, uh, community health. Uh, and healthcare access and uh, after-school program and wraparound services. Wow, hmm. that's impressive. How much of that do you think is? Uh, and Pop, this is much. This is much for you as, as for you. How, how much of that do you think the the environment that you are in and what you have access to determines what you're going to do? And how much of it is? Um, this is. Um, I I have been broken and beaten down for so many years. I'm. I'm my my trunk has become so twisted trying to reach up through the canopy to find some light that um you know th that it requires requires more than that you know because i know that the skeptics listening would be like okay so you build a bunch of houses that's not going to change anything um what what is it a, is it a chicken and egg thing or is it just that that's why it's comprehensive how do you handle that Eddie, why don't you do this yeah so it's interesting because i think you could argue and debate uh as if they were mutually exclusive the the, the logic of indi individual responsibility and the importance of positive life-giving environments when both are really true. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But the reality is in America today, even for the person who wants to make it out. So we have all probably met someone with a really, really rough background with every negative sort of strike against them who's made it out and they're really impressive. And it's easy to go like, wait a minute, he's done it. And the rest of them just need to you know, get mm-hmm. their act together. But statistically speaking, concentrated poverty is such a strong predictor of success. It's been described this way that a black boy in particular in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty, um, being able to accomplish four basic life goals, graduating from high school, going to college, landing a good job, starting a healthy family, uh, being able to accomplish that requires, is the statistical equivalent of that same child climbing up an escalator in the wrong direction for 12 years. Wow. It would take that kind of willpower and focus and good luck and a mentor and a praying grandmother or two. And so you make it out, but the odds are so stacked against you. And whereas if you, instead of 32805, you'd been smart enough at birth to pick parents across Highway 50 (laughs) in 32804, you're in the Country Club of Orlando College Park, a wonderful neighborhood community. The odds of you graduating from high school, going to college, landing a job, starting a healthy family, even if you make a few mistakes along the way, are quite predictable. Mm -hmm. Little to do with you, but because this environment has an escalator moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating environments where people can automatically thrive by just showing up and doing what they're supposed to do and not having to exercise these Herculean efforts to make it out. Now, it's still America. You're free to screw up your life if you want to. (laughs) Uh, You have the right to do that. Uh, But we, in 2018, also have the ability to have more neighborhoods have equal access to opportunity. Yeah, gotcha. that's fantastic. That is, and it's really, and it's really helpful to hear it, you know, in that context. Because <clears throat> I think what I think a mistake that gets made a lot is is a lack of having empathy because there's not a face, there's statistics, and it's yes. it's not you know that's not this this is making a difference for this young kid. You know, I mean, it's it's really hard for anyone to look at a two year old and be like. Forget about you. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, I got mine. Get out of here. Uh, because there, it's a two-year-old. But it's really, really easy to look at a number that says 62% or, you know, there's something like that. And so, you know, putting putting a face on that and and it helps to that that phrase of of the escalator, you know, that that picture mm-hmm. of an escalator. Because yeah. it's it's much less about um, saying we're, we're going to push people along the whole way or whatever. It's still a door that's open that, you know, you can go through or not go through. Yeah. Uh, you're not, we're not trying to promise a guarantee of prosperity to every person. Mm-hmm. All we're trying to say is how do we remove economic isolation? Yeah. Yeah. Since the recession, um, most second tier markets like ours have made a great comeback, and yet we still have the same neighborhoods stuck in the same situation. Yep. Yeah. All we're trying to do is make it easier for them to participate in yeah. the economic growth. Some are, um, Bob Lupton, who wrote Toxic Charity and have been a mentor in this work, said, mm-hmm. we don't need more programs and services. What we need most is really caring and connected neighbors. That's right. Yeah. Amen. We need caring and connected neighbors. Uh, and that is the whole point of this. And that's the whole point of this show. It's to try to figure out uh, ways that we can care for and connect with our neighbors. Uh, one way that you can do that is if you go to simple.help, if you type that into your web browser, uh, you can get connected with a community of people that just want to help. If you're an introvert, don't worry. It's introvert friendly. Um, Eddie, thank you so much. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for your life. And Mm. thank you guys for listening. We will see you next time on The Bright Side.